1: Welcome to another episode of the future socks podcast my name is mike rankin i'll be your host joined by senior editor james fox as well today our guest you may have heard him on the radio connor mcknight formerly of wls as well as you may have heard him on 670 the score so connor welcome thanks so much for taking the time to join the future socks podcast we're excited to talk white Sox baseball of course specifically your intake of the the minor league scene as well as what to look forward to in, in 2020 in this condensed schedule but man it is uh,
2: it is really good to talk to you my friend appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat a little bit have enjoyed your guys work on future socks for quite some time and i specifically appreciate uh james's work because whenever i would get something wrong about an obscure white Sox prospect it was always there to correct me in the kindest way possible thanks
3: man <laughs> yeah no problem
1: All right, Connor, so let's talk some conversation related to the negotiations of Major League Baseball and the Players Association, because as things shut down in March 11th, there was an opportunity for both sides to come together relatively quickly, get in a little bit more games across their schedule. I don't know, I I feel like the way things turned out, it, it didn't have to come to this, right, to the point where Commissioner Madfred needed to implement a condensed schedule of 60 games. So I, I guess I wanted to ask you your general opinion. And as you were following this story, what you were feeling as a baseball fan as things were continued to be uh, linked out there.
2: Oh, well, I don't know. I guess if we're going to talk about that. Maybe we should go over the policy for swearing here on the podcast, because it, it, my, my <laughs> attitude toward the negotiations wasn't very good. And that's not a swear word, but there could be some coming later. I, I don't, I mean, so feel free to leave this in or take it out if you want. But full disclosure, the three of us are sitting down Wednesday, 6.05 in the evening. And I just saw a tweet about 10 minutes before I, I was literally, I was signing on to, to come on with you guys and talk. And I just saw that Rob Manfred was on the Dan Patrick show earlier today saying he knew and baseball knew full well that they were never going to play more than 60 games because of all of the concerns in and around COVID-19. And if if you've got the commissioner saying the quiet part out loud, you know, the part that they can't admit to while they're having negotiations about 114, 100, 110, 80, all of these different manipulations, all these different ideas of what a baseball season is going to look like. And then the guy, after he's got something signed, sealed, delivered for the owners who signed a crap deal for themselves back in March, you got the owner then saying, wow, we were never going to play more than 60 games. I can't say that this was was done in good faith, that that anybody had the right idea about how to negotiate what a potential baseball season looks like. And it doesn't matter to me if we're talking just about the negotiations – that a 60 game season and playing fewer baseball games and what's gonna end up happening for baseball, that that will be safer for people um, as it concerns the coronavirus, that this whole plan will be, I don't know, more informed because it's happening later in the year and we know more about the virus now than we did the day before and that will continue to be true. It, It doesn't matter to me that those things will help baseball in the long run should they play because that's not what they were holding up as evidence throughout their entire negotiation process. They weren't saying that they were doing this for the good of players, managers, coaches, staff, fans, any of that stuff. They were bitching and moaning about the handful of dollars that they either were or were not going to make with fans in the stands, not the well-being of those attached to the baseball That's frustrating for me. I think it ought to be frustrating for a lot of people. Um, You know, I'm I'm of two minds on this, guys, and I I think a lot of people are. I'm glad there will be baseball. I'm reluctant to think that there will be as much as Major League Baseball is planning for. And even while I'm watching baseball, even while I'm watching the White Sox and, and watching Nick Madrigal at some point a couple weeks in, there's still going to be something in the back of my mind that's that's yelling pretty loudly maybe this isn't the right thing for people right now it's it's going to be a tough difficult weird strange season to watch it's going to be like watching major league baseball but in a like on a rick and morty episode where everything goes wrong and it all gets weird and somebody gets eaten at the end of it and i i hope that's all the nonsense we have to deal with and i pray that it's not something more disastrous or
0: deadly
3: yeah, for sure, Connor. And, and you know, I we, we've discussed it with a lot of different guests on here. And the same thing, it's just like, you know, what should they do and what are they going to do are two different things. And I've kind of pushed back a little bit, and you'll understand this, you know, just the people randomly who are like, oh, yeah, they should just cancel everything. and And that might be, like, maybe ultimately what they should do. But, man, there's livelihoods on the line, not just even, you know, with the players playing, but, you know, in the industry that – that you've worked in for a good while here and in scouting and you know, in TV and in all that other stuff, you know, I I think the nation as a whole is, is, is making economic decisions, right? So the league is going to try to push ahead as much as possible here. So it seems like, you know, they're going to do everything they can to play, but we, we have no idea whether it's actually going to work. And we're kind of like, just like witnessing this like sociological experiment like happen before us. And, and it's just, you know, it's kind of tough. It's tough to reconcile because I just, you know, I just kind of want to watch this White Sox team play, but yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's definitely like deeper than that.
2: It, it is. And, and I, I think you're right, James, in that, or, or at least I should say, I agree with you in that. Um, I don't think it's wrong to plan to play baseball, right? Like on a philosophical level, I don't think that's a wrong thing to do. I do think though, that once you start playing, uh, whatever that looks like, whether it's you know this this sixty game season that they've uh, they've come up with here, or whether it was going to be any other kind of season, I do think it would be wrong to you know, once you've started a season, uh, look at new information uh, about the virus in particular, the spread of the virus, the impact of it, the lasting effects of it, and even after you've recovered, you know the lasting effects, which we're learning more and more about, more and more published studies every day, like to continue to play if all of the new information, science that we discover goes, hey, this is an even worse idea. I'm not, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm saying it's potential. And when you hear ownerships, um, you know those that Rob Manfred represented saying they're losing biblical amounts of money, it's important, I think, to, I don't know, for those people to be reminded that, yeah, You may be losing biblical sums of money, whatever that means, but, you know, at what cost are you playing baseball to recoup a tenth of a percent of these biblical amounts, right? Like if you're letting a thousand people into the ballpark, does that really make you feel good if the risks are increased and we learn more about this potentially being a bad idea?
3: It's, it's, you know, crazy and above, you know, all of our pay grades at this point, obviously. Shifting over a little bit, just to the White Sox, sixty-game season. We've, you know, we've heard some say that, you know, a young team like the White Sox um, might not get exposed in a sixty-game season. You know, they might over one sixty-two, but it might benefit them. You know, you could also, I think, argue the other way that that it could hurt them, not having the look. So, what do you think? How does how does it hurt and how does it help the White Sox a sixty-game season?
2: So obviously, I think depth was going to be an issue for the White Sox going into a 160 normal life, right? I think depth was going to be an issue. But I, I really like, and you know, Rick Hahn used the phrase, all hands on deck, which will be the last time I say it, because everyone else can use it, and that's going to be said quite a bit over the next month. But I like the idea of, of being able to take theoretically healthy guys like Carlos Rodon and Dane Dunning and throw them into uh, short burst settings. Um, throw them into three batters and let this stuff work. And even if Carlos walks four and strikes out three, that's only one run. So yeah, that's it's not all that bad. I, I like being able to apply those areas um, of, of relative strength, you know, that kind of starting pitching and, and stuff. I mean, if we're talking about you know, a little more granule, granular level, uh, and stuff to to the White Sox. I also think, and this is a, a pet theory that I've done a little bit of a little bit of research on, and haven't found anything definitive uh, in in saying like yes, this is a thing. But I, I just can't quite shake the idea. I I think a shorter season, a sixty game season, obviously you, know, you run simulations. I think it benefits young hitters in in a in a big way. I think the idea of guys coming up making their debuts, I, I think of Aquino a lot with the, with the Cincinnati Reds this last year. You, you don't know how to get them out until the second time through the, through the league. And granted, you'll see a second time a little faster with condensed schedules and playing teams like the, I don't know, the Indians and Twins 20 times in a year, but in a 60-game in stretch, I should say. But I like the idea of what a shorter season does for younger hitters and their ability to stay on top of a league that's going to adjust to them. I would worry for teams that are that might be heavily reliant on more than flash in the pan relievers but you know those guys who you know they'll they'll shift like a Brandon Finnegan type like they they are starters but get pushed into relief because the team like needs them right away like a, like a Jova Chamberlain right needs them right away, and needs the stuff, and chucks them into the pen. It's like, okay, just rely on this. And and then they make their living doing that for about two years and then completely disappear. I think those guys, you know, if they were making their ascent last season, those kind of bullpen arms where you go, yeah, maybe you get one, two prime years out of this guy before he completely evaporates. I think that guy's lost his traction. I think that theoretical pitcher has has kind of lost his juice in facing live hitters. And I think that's harder to regain than than a younger kid uh, swinging with a lot of tools and a lot of raw ability and, and understanding of his own talent rather than um, exactly what pitchers are trying to do to him.
1: How do you think this season impacts some of these White Sox players, like you were talking about? Because it's so interesting. and. An argument that can be made as an owner is, well, we want to get this season in because we invested in players, potentially those who can opt out of their contracts or become free agents after this year. We want to be able to get some value for what our investment was. Um, So I think there's, there's multiple conversations to this. But when it comes to just the straight development of these players, when it comes to the minor league scene as well, like these players are obviously losing a year of straight development playing competitively. Uh, And and then those who are thrust upon this 60-player player player pool, uh, you know, are potentially going up against Major League pitchers and Major League competition for the first time. So it's kind of like a jumbled mess here. So I'm just curious your take on how all of that would work out specifically related to young White Sox prospects.
2: Yeah, I, I guess, you know, to a certain degree... Across baseball, I suppose I fit, Jason Stark wrote this uh, the other day, and I've kind of been thinking about it since. It's the twenty nineteen draft picks that I feel badly for, um, and the White Sox are in a little bit of a uh, of an exception because of who they took in that draft and what his profile looks like. Obviously, nobody, no, the no White Sox fans really need to hear me tell them about Andrew Vaughn. Like the dreams are large and the hopes are high, and they ought to be. So he's a little bit different, but for a lot of players taken in that draft, you know, you, you finish your collegiate season or, you know, your high school playoff season, you take some time off, and maybe you get assigned to a, you know, a short summer league or something like this, and you play a handful of games, and maybe you pick up a, an ankle issue or a quad tweak or something like that, and the manager's just, you know, okay, twice a week for you, and then then you're just kind of done. And then you spend off-season off getting yourself – back from what what is usually an exhausting stretch of baseball, right? Like ending your amateur career and then starting to do whatever you can, whatever you're healthy enough to go do or or have the juice left to go do in a short season and then go on to play. So I I worry about the lost development for a lot of players from that draft. And I, I think maybe it's good news for the White Sox that they have one guy, at least toward the top of the draft, um, that that might be the exception to that rule because of how advanced a hitter he is. Um, I I would also worry. I guess if if we're talking just about development, right? It is I don't know. What do you guys want to call it? Imperative. Uh, it is immovable that Luis Robert, that Aloy Jimenez, and then I, I guess to a different extent, but also likely true that Nomar Mazzara get all of the at-bats you can possibly hand them in a 2020 60-game season. Those are the guys you need to see development from in the case of Jimenez and Robert, And Mazzara just needs to prove me wrong, I guess, <laughs> over 60 games for the thing to be, for the thing to work out. That doesn't do good things for guys like uh, Luis Pisabe, That doesn't do good things for really anybody. You know, go down the depth chart of outfielders and then without a minor league season, you, you look at each one of those guys who won't have the same kind of opportunity to develop outside of, you know, the secondary roster or taxi squad action. Those are, I, I hope it's not true, but those are what I fear could be, you know, lost developmental cases over, the, over what will be a 2020 season of, of largely uh, inactivity, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think those are some of the names that are very important here when it comes to a lost minor league baseball season. So they're playing an unofficial, wh- wherever they're located, if it's Chicago State or wherever they announce it to be, where these player pools who aren't on the active roster need to continue to, to get their reps in. Uh, but how about these two names? And I wanted to focus specifically on Michael Kopech and Jake Berger. Obviously, Kopech had, had the uh, Tommy John surgery, a full offseason mm-hmm. and a full season to recover. But here's Jake Berger, hasn't played since 2017. He's posting stuff on social media and he's looking ready to go.
2: Yeah, I you know, I I really I, and anybody who spent time with him, anybody who's talked with him for a little bit, it's it's difficult to come to a conclusion other than I really like Jake Berger. Like it's it's really the guys, I'm sure you guys have had a chance to either cross paths with him or chat a little bit or talk to a lot of people who have. Like, he's just fun. He's just a fun guy to talk to. And even through all of the all of the rehab he's been through, he's still, he remains, at least it seems, a pretty upbeat guy with some fun. Certainly his experience has changed him some and 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 you know been tough. But you know, when we talk about guys that that might be, you know, make or break or or put up or shut up kind of things. Certainly no one's gonna look at Jake Berger and say, well, he just couldn't cut it and couldn't get it done. But that is a pick. You know, from a, a prior scouting director era um, where you have some questions about taking a guy that shape and size with that kind of collegiate career and going, OK, this is a guy that can hit the majors. Are we sure? Because we don't really have a position here. And, and then he goes, you know, through no fault of his own blows an Achilles twice. And, and that, you know, makes you question even more so where things are at on the defensive spectrum and and whether or not things are going to look good. Granted, like you know, like you said, like like the stuff he's posting looks great. Um, you know, I'm sure he's not going to post a 60-yard dash where he falls down halfway through. You know, there's that. But the ones he are is posting look really good. And for Kopek, I think, you know, I I I think it would be fine. You know, assuming he's healthy to, you know, push him to a point where he's long reliever type work. Um, But I I think, you know, that comes with with like a, that's not going to make White Sox fans feel good. But I think long reliever um, comes back in a way in this 60 game season that will be much more impactful. You know, people have been talking about, you know, the next Andrew Miller for a good long while now and realizing that that takes a toll on guys and it's not necessarily repeatable if you don't have, you know, his talent build and uh, and, and experience, too, being knocked down as a starter in the bigs. But I, I think the idea of having this, you know, wildcard kind of guy in and around a bullpen or maybe even available to make some starts, or maybe longer, like an opener might um, might benefit him. But, but that's all going to depend... You know, I don't want to use the the COVID excuse here. It's not necessarily going to depend on what we don't know around the virus, but we're doing spring training again in the summer, and and who knows how many soft tissue injuries are going to pop up for the White Sox or for any team, and and what teams are going to have to do to readdress what might be their best look philosophy right now. And that's why I think you know as much as any team with the kind of pitching that the White Sox could be able to throw onto their active roster, that they should be equipped to deal with some of the, um, some of the unknowns about what a second spring training looks like for athletes.
3: Yeah. So with, I mean, with Kopech, it's a good example, just because look, he, he's completely healthy and ready to go. And, and looking at it, you know, from the perspective of March, I think they were going to start Kopech and Charlotte, um, they weren't going to start them in cold weather. They were also yeah, probably going to mess with service time a little bit, but I think they also, they were going to try to conserve innings. Well, now they don't have to do that. So we've talked a little bit about tandem starts just because they, you know, they kind of have seven starters right now. No team yeah. has ever had too much pitching, obviously, but do, do you see, um, I guess with the seven starters, how do you, how do you lay that out, you think, if they did do tandem starts? Is it, something, is it like Kopech with Gio Gonzalez because they're so different? Or how would you go about that, you think?
2: I I, I really like the idea of tandem starts. I think um, this is an opportunity for baseball as an entity and some, not necessarily saying Rick Maria is old school, but for some old school managers to look at a brand new scenario and go, okay, how do we tackle this the best way we can? And I, I think, you know, I, the, the worry I guess I would have for tandem starters throughout a, a longer spread of baseball is that you let, you get locked into the pairings, right? Like, uh, like you mentioned, you, you've got two guys who are dissimilar in their style and stuff. So you throw them together and you make an opposing roster kind of battle that some. I, I think in a shorter stretch, but sorry, let's do this first. In a, in a longer run, because of the rotation and rest times being what they are, if you have a tandem start system, you would lock yourselves into the same two guys throwing the same tandem starts. You know what I mean? For a shorter stretch with theoretically more rested guys and a taxi squad available to mix and match, I think that's what needs to be done. and i and i I loathe this because it gets so close to, you know, Terry Francona with a 40-man roster and 95 bullpen arms available to him in the late days of September where he's making pitching changes every four seconds. But that works. You know, that stuff works. You get, you know, somebody like, uh, I don't know, Birdie or Hewer or something like that, if, if they're working late in games or, or even are on the roster for their taxi squad day or something like that, find him the three batters that he's best able to face and you, you work your game that way. You, you, you're, with fewer games, I think it's on coaches to do more work, to find places for pitchers to be effective. I, I think, you know, even though the White Sox mantra for the last 35 years or however long Don Cooper has been there has been the starter goes as long as he can. The starter dies on the mound, and then we take him out and throw the bullpen guy in. I don't know that that's the right approach, and, and I, I would bet – with the White Sox uh, assortment of arms and ability to tandem start guys, that, that that's where they head, that that's where they, they examine heading anyway.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, the manager thing is going to be really important over 60. And I, I think I've generally agreed with your thoughts, you know, on, on managers being fairly, you know, overrated over 162. But with 60, it's different. And you mentioned Cleveland there. Um, Cleveland's a team where you know I thought over 162. Maybe if they struggled with that offense, they might start selling off pieces. But man, in a yeah. 60, in a 60 game season, they they could win this whole thing, and like nobody should be surprised because of their pitching and because Terry Francona is managing them. So mm-hmm. you know I definitely agree with you there. One of the good rules I think that's coming out of this universal DH for this season. Hopefully, pitchers are done hitting forever. Uh, your thoughts on that, and then are there any that you just actually really don't like very much? I've tried to not complain about the new rules just because I want baseball back. But what do you think about the universal DH and then some of the other stuff that's going to be different? Uh,
2: the universal DH is is long overdue. Although I I will tell you I I wish I was told when I was watching the last month of baseball last season that this was going to be the last run of the pitcher hitting it's it's not that i'm gonna be i guess i'll I'll be a little nostalgic about it but don't you don't you think we all deserved a chance to just wave goodbye to whatever that was to know that this was going to be the last one like we kind of got robbed of this of this way of this idea of like a new cba being ready to agree to and you've got guys like jeff Passon reporting that yeah you know when it's done you know this will be the last go around with the deal. we didn't get that we didn't get a chance to, to mourn whatever this was and just say goodbye and give it a proper Viking funeral where we set it all on fire on its way out to the middle of the ocean, right? I, I feel like we yeah. all deserved that.
3: Well, I, I think National League teams, some of them probably agree with you because they would have handled their offseason a hell of a lot differently, I think, oh, right? I mean, there's, Jesus, JD, J.D. Martinez is sitting out there and the, the Red Sox are begging somebody to deal for him and there's only like two teams in the entire league that need him. Well, now there's now there's quite a bit more. So yeah, I think they're there it is manage a little bit initially, I think, nationally. You think the marketplace the
2: White Sox saw for Encarnacion would have been the same if you had fifteen more teams interested in what he could
3: do for you? Absolutely. Right, exactly. Not. Yeah. Encarnacion had like basically one landing spot, I think. It was yes. it was the White Sox. So yep, agreed. Yeah, and
2: so I, I think it's the right way to go. And I, I think that's where we were inevitably headed one way or the other. But I think we needed a chance to say goodbye. And I'm I'm with you, James. I Whatever rules they're coming up with, um, fine. It's all weird. It's None of it's the best-case scenario. I, I, I want to put this as strongly as possible. I, I detest and abhor the runner on second base to start extra innings. I, it's ludicrous. It's dumb. It's offensive. Uh, and I think I'm getting a rash talking about it. <laughs> But, but fine. You know what I, you know what I mean? Just like if we're gonna do this, if we're gonna play these games, fine. I was even I think it was JJ. Cooper over at baseball, uh, baseball America who, my God, is he a fantastic baseball writer. But Cooper was doing some research in the last two minor league seasons where they had you know the runner on second base to start extras. And even, and I'm a data guy, you guys know that. Like how about it? Show me the numbers and I'm ready to be convinced. He even showed me the numbers, right? Yes, games have been ending in fewer innings with a runner on second base to start extras. Not a whole lot fewer, but some fewer innings. And that's the whole point of doing this in a 60-game season is that you don't have one team go through every single pitcher they brought to the ballpark that day and then throw a bunch of guys' nephews on the day after that because that's all they've got left on a taxi squad or something. So I get it, but I still don't like it. And I will probably tweet about it. (laughs) And I think I'm done
3: screaming about it. Well, so Renteria talked this week and talked about kind of how he didn't like it. And I was actually really surprised that he didn't like it because that scenario is the actually like the only time where you should be maybe bunting a guy over. He he he, <laughs> he should he should love the tenth inning with a guy on second because then he you know he could he could sacrifice bunt over to third and then you got two outs to work with instead of what yeah. he normal instead of what he normally does so
2: well it, it, it places a new premium on oh god who's this dumbass manager that oh Dale Swain with his with his <laughs> with his bunting tournament in spring training right bring Dale Swain around and sit him on a bench somewhere and teach everybody how to bunt yeah and no, I I think you're right um, but hopefully. You know, hopefully the, the existence of a TH with that runner on second base lends managers to just go, well, no, I have the extra hitter. I, well, maybe that would only apply to the 15 National League managers anyway, I guess. But even still, if we're cutting half the bunting out of the game, that's probably a good thing.
1: Dale Swain, What a name. Glad you brought that in. Uh, you were able to work that into the podcast. But you talked a, a couple things there that I wanted to hit on, you know. Related to the runner on second base, and in, in the minor leagues they've been doing this, right? And in, in independent yeah. scenes they've been doing this, so it's been done before. Um, College so, softball has been doing it
2: for the better part of twenty years, and it's been working yeah. fine for them.
1: And it's it's all a matter of expediting the, the conclusion of the game, and they want to be yeah. able to fill in as many possible games within a sixty six day period or whatever it is as possible, obviously. Uh, so you know what? If you have to experiment, I'm kind of on board with what you're what you're saying. I don't like it, but if it's got to be done, it's got to be done. But related to the minor league scene. And I guess we're going to shift gears a little bit here. What's your general opinion now of the way you see minor league baseball because obviously things are going to be changing moving forward. We already saw uh, you know the, the reduction of the draft and we can probably expect it to reduce from 40 rounds to something uh, you know fewer moving forward. Uh, and then we're also you know keeping an eye on some of these teams and affiliates that are on the chopping block who might not be a part of minor league baseball any longer. So I'm just curious your take on the state of minor league baseball considering, right, a lot of what happened with the draft, we're seeing so many players change their career paths whether they go to college or, you know, just leave baseball together.
2: Yeah, it's 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 tough. It's tough to watch. I mean, I'm a I'm a huge fan of of the minor leagues. I worked in Myrtle Beach for the Pelicans for a season uh, about 10 years ago when they were a Braves affiliate. Um, I had a blast. I I love the Arizona fall league. I love being out in Arizona for, you know, spring training and stuff like that because of, uh, I don't know, I guess the feel, the minor league like feel that that gives you. Um, Aside from all that, you know, the economics of the thing are are ludicrous. I mean that you're now cutting the draft down to, I, I don't know, 15 rounds or something like that. And that might even be optimistic from my standpoint. And then taking all of these other players that might have otherwise been draft picks with signing bonuses and signing them for something like 20 or $40,000. It's just, it's, it's really criminal. Um, and I would encourage, uh, if you are a fan of the minor leagues or, you know, guys who go to play baseball and deserve a living wage, I would encourage you to contact your state legislatures, um, And while telling them uh, about many other more important bills that need to be passed, protecting the lives and wherewithal of human beings, uh, one thing you could also talk to them about is pulling back legislation that allows Major League Baseball teams to declare minor leaguers seasonal seasonal work. What that does is allow them to treat them the way they're treated, Uh, and I don't think that's fair. I think too, you know, in pulling back from the minor leagues and, and deleting a whole bunch of teams and, and probably more. I mean, I mean, it's it's what forty two, I think, at the outset here, and will likely be more before we have a new um, or by the time we have a new CBA. It's you know, it's a livelihood, it's an economic stream for a lot of small cities in America, and right now, any source of economic flow is better than what we've got going on. So I think it's a very short-sighted thing for Major League Baseball. Now let's talk about the, the, the baseball impact of things. Don't you think that treating your minor leagues better? And I mean from like a strength and conditioning, um, food and nutrition, uh, mental health standpoint, like providing those resources to minor leaguers, isn't that more likely to churn out more Major League quality players from a system Than treating them like kids who can subsist on donuts and peanut butter sandwiches after games. That's it's never made sense to me that some owner hasn't blown in there. Illich before he passed was like the perfect example because the guy just wanted to win one by now. And you know what I mean? He just, he was ready to throw the money into it. Just throw and invest money into these young players and prove that treating them like premier athletes actually makes premier athletes it's bizarre to me that major League Baseball was just never willing to invest in this labor source as potential stars of their of their league it's it's crazy um, I, I think what that will make happen is is a is a much smaller pool of top prospects I think it may crush some developmental curves you know we'll have some guys who, you know, break into the bigs at 27 or 28 and have two or three seasons, but we won't have many. And that affects these smaller market teams from being able to generate some short spurt of competitiveness because they just hung with a guy after he had flamed out somewhere else. I think it's, um, I think it deletes from the talent pool here. And for a game that is trying to draw in as many eyes as it can these days, COVID notwithstanding, um, removing your ability to put talented players on the field for fans to watch cannot help your bottom line at the end of the day, and yet they're telling me that it will.
3: Yeah, you know, covering the draft, Connor, it's kind of – I guess I realized, you know, how short-sighted a lot of these owners are, you know, because they cut it to five this year, and the Players Association let them do it. But, you know, like they see – you know, that they're, they they are spend 125 k occasionally on a guy that can't get past A-ball, right? That's what they see. Mm-hmm. They see, oh, why am I blowing this money on a guy that's that, you know, isn't going to amount to anything? But they don't see, you know, that you'd get Andrew Vaughn for a $6 million bonus, and then you get him for, you know, seven more cost-controlled years after that, right? Like, you hit on one pick, the whole draft pays for itself. But that's not how these, that's not how, you know, a lot of these guys see it. So that's well, been... You I mean, James, you're 100% right,
2: man. You, you get one guy, like forget Andrew Vaughn. Like you're 100% right there. Andrew Vaughn and, you know, if he pans out to play his, you know, whatever it is, seven controlled years for the White Sox at whatever minimums, even with arbitration increases, he does that. Um, he's paid for that draft very easily. You get one guy out of those middle rounds, that 15 to 20 round who turns into like a, two or three win player for i don't know over three years that's like 40 million bucks you know i mean it's just look at what the cost of win a buff replacement is look at how one guy can save you a minor league system's worth of forty thousand dollar page like it just the math just doesn't make sense the way they've chosen to value the math just doesn't make sense to me and it's not just with Vaughn, but it's you know guys who show up and have cups of coffee and end up turning themselves into viable players for two or three years. I'm not talking about you know, all-stars or anything like that. I'm talking about guys who hold down positions, and you look back 10 years later, you know what? Yolmer Sanchez was a pretty damn good player for two or three years, and I really enjoyed watching him.
3: Yeah, so how, how much of the 2020 draft did you follow? And then the, you know, the White Sox took the strategy of trying to – you know, get two top 20 players in the class. And then they kind of punted the rest of their draft, but you know, they prioritize premium talent. They did it a little bit last year too. It's a, it's a changing strategy for them. So I guess any overall thoughts on the 2020 draft and then just on what the White Sox did.
2: Yeah. I I like, um, I, I like who they took. And I like the idea of in a shortened draft right now that I've railed against it for a while, like let's play the game, right? These are the rules they've constructed. I, I like the idea of saying, the hell with it, go get your two top 20 players. Um, I don't mind that in a five-round draft. If it were a larger situation and like they you know, kind of did the year before and moving some things around and taking a bunch of seniors and just kind of um, letting themselves draft some other players, I, I think what I'd like to ask Rick Hahn and company is – you know, now that you've done this two years in a row, is this indicative of draft philosophy or did this happen two years in a row because of what the 2019 draft looked like and the wholly unique circumstances of the 2020 draft? I, cause I would think, you know, most of it is going to be, most of the answer is going to be, well, it depends on the talent in the draft. But if I'm sitting here advocating for, You know, picking up a wider swath of players because hitting on one random dude in the 22nd can help supply the value for the rest of the minor league system. Then I I should also be supportive of taking a wider approach to a major league baseball draft, right? To taking you know the best player each and every go round, knowing that you know that may cost you a little bit later on. I. You know, I'm a little bit concerned getting to the player specifically. Like, I'm I'm fine with uh, with where they went overall. Uh, the kid out of Tennessee. I'm fine with Crochet. I guess I would worry just a little bit about the lack of breaking ball and the size to weight ratio of, of Jared Kelly. Um, it, I mean, he seems like he's filled himself out completely, right? I mean, he's a big kid. He's a Texas linebacker, for God's sake. So... You know, usually in the draft, you're looking at guys going, all right, five more pounds, 10 more pounds. You get him a little thicker in the ass, that kind of thing. And maybe you've got a couple more clicks on the gun. I, I don't. I wonder if that's there for him. Um, I wonder, I, maybe that's not necessary, but it, it might be in order to maintain and acquire a quality big league breaking ball. It's um, so my concern there. But, but even still, you, you've taken a kid who's got apparently an incredibly natural feel for a changeup. And God, I love that in a, in a young amateur pitcher. That's just fantastic touch.
1: Connor, you mentioned something that, that caught my attention and it was related to draft philosophy. Now, whether it's philosophy or based on circumstance, I like the way you phrased that because over the last couple of years, the White Sox have gone against recent trends in their history of attacking prep talents, uh, in specific rounds and willing to spend overslot value on these players to ensure that they sign within the organization. So I guess my question to you is your perception of the way the organization has approached signing these amateurs as well as, you know, constructing a minor league system that many believe are, you know, at least top 10 in baseball at this point, even despite the fall off across the top five players.
2: I'm good with it. Um, I think, you know, if you look back at maybe some of the sins of the past, it has netted you some some premier players. It has, after a while, gotten you to a point where Zach Collins is ready to play in the bigs. And if he can hit right-handed pitching for power, that's a guy who sticks around in the major leagues for quite some time, even if he's not, you know, the guy that uh, the White Sox up and down swore that he was going to be. I, that, that happens with baseball players, right? But I, I think it took... Um, And and I don't think I'm I'm speaking out of school here, but I I think the White Sox have talked about this. It took some time and some conversation with ownership to invest in the types of players we're talking about, right? The prep players and some of the international players. Um, Let's not forget that the White Sox are had been rebuilding from a spectacular international scandal for a while. And for those fans who think that those scars don't last much longer, uh, they absolutely do. Those relationships are very difficult to rebuild. And uh, Marco Petty did a really good job, I think, in and and is still doing uh, in, in rebuilding some of those, or that the White Sox are still doing in rebuilding some of those relationships. So I, I think the front office has, has done a good job in – turning that part of the financial ship toward the right current, you know, and, and enabling those funds, getting sent to those players, even if they are a little on the riskier side of things. Um, you know, I, I know falling in love with a player early in a draft process is something that every front office or every every um, scouting department can can fall victim to. Um, but I, I think... I think in doing what they've done the last two seasons, they've kind of shown fans that uh, not this draft accepted because of its, its five-round nature, that they're able to kind of put that in the past and maybe spread some of that wealth around a little bit differently. Uh, not like just actual money, but somebody investment and scouting and all that kind of stuff that goes into taking a player. Spread that a, lot, a, little, a little bit more equally.
3: Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of glad that they've leaned prep heavy a little bit here, you know, and obviously nobody saw the pandemic coming, but it's one of the things we touched on a little bit earlier. Some of the guys that are really hurt by this, you mentioned the 2019 draft. I mean, they they were so college heavy, you know, and everybody talks about how they're like less risky, but the problem is like, they've taken college heavy guys that have that, that have had issues and you know, once you get over those issues, you're 24 years old already. Right. And then it's kind of, you know, so at least these high school guys, they're going to miss development time, but ideally they're going to be back on the field at the age of 20 next year, you know, after they've done some stuff, it, it hurts some of the older guys, I think a lot more. So, you, you know, you've seen, you've been out to spring training, you were out there this year. Um, are there any socks prospects, I guess, that you're fond of outside of the top couple of names that everybody knows?
2: Ooh, how, how deep do I get to go here? Like, let's define, let's define our top tier because, and this is what I think is really interesting about the 2020 season, right? Is like so many teams are going to use that secondary roster, um, for the top prospects so that they can get that development injected into their bodies because we don't have the minor league system. Right. Uh, so so in other scenarios where, you know, top picks would be in Great Falls or something like that, now they're going to be in and around, um, I, I would imagine. I mean, we don't know exactly how we're going to do this yet, but some of those prospects are going to be in and around uh, big league coaching, close to big league players. All that kind of stuff is, is enabled now. So I think we kind of I, – I need you guys to define where that top bubble stops and, and how – how deep you you'd like me to get with some of the uh, some of the dark horse picks? Because we're in a different world now.
3: Yeah, so I think you know it being the future Sox podcast, you can go as deep as you want. I just kind of meant. Well, that's fair. Yeah, I just I just kind of meant. You know, everybody knows everybody knows kopeck Robert, uh, Madrigal, Vaughn. Those are the top four, and then you know I think five through ten is is kind of a preference type thing. So I guess somebody, you know, somebody that you've seen that you kind of like that maybe people don't talk about often. Okay,
2: so yeah, I am really excited to see this Luis Robert fellow. And if White Sox fans haven't heard of him by now, uh, you should get yourself out from underneath the rock that you've been living. I guess Stever is is still interesting to me. I, you know, for whatever reason, when I saw him work, uh, the little bit in camp that I was there, let's see, the last season gosh, with this whole COVID thing, it feels like it was all yesterday and also 15 years ago. The, the last two times I was able to watch him work, he was not that good. Um, but that was definitely like selection. I, I think I just caught him on bad days, you know. So I I, I guess I would, I would say that's somewhat interesting to me as a guy who, you know, might pop some and might you know, pitch some at a, at a big league level a little bit and, uh, is also a little bit off the radar, I suppose. Does that that work? Do we get it there?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think that's good. Jonathan Stevers, uh, you know, in their, in their top 10, I think, and had some injury issues in camp. So it'll be interesting to see. He hasn't been added to that 60 man pool officially yet, but I would imagine that's the type of guy that's, you know, over on that alternate site team.
2: Yeah. And just to just to prove my math a little bit, like I I know I mentioned I didn't see it, but the I didn't see him pitch well, but I you know when I would ask people afterward, people that would know, like, hey, what was up with this? What was up with this? The way they talked about his you know rough outing or the little hiccup that he had here or there or whatever was unlike the way I've heard um, guys in the front office or scouts or whatever talk about other guys, bad outings or something like that. Something about the way they talked uh, through what went wrong for him on that particular day made me think, huh, I wonder if this kid isn't just a little bit different or I wonder if this guy isn't just a, a, a little bit um, shaped a little bit uh, better than some other prospects I'd watched before.
1: Connor, awesome stuff, man. Thanks so much for taking the time to jump on the Future Socks podcast. Uh, always – value your insight and we really appreciate you jumping on talking white Sox baseball is there anything that you're working on now as we let you go that we could look forward to any sneak previews that we could give the listeners uh in your personal life
2: you know i i uh i am remodeling the fireplace right now and that's uh i think i'll probably be tweeting some pictures of that when it's done but i can't imagine anyone gives a damn about that I, I will be starting a baseball podcast once we get closer to, uh, to opening day. Uh, it's a podcast to be named later, though I won't be naming it that. And, uh, and we're just we're just going to talk baseball all, all through the season, whatever we end up having. So I am, uh, I'm looking forward to sitting down and working a little bit again on, uh, on the game I love, regardless of what it looks like over this summer. <laughs>
1: Well, that's really encouraging. Can't wait to check it out, and uh, we'll we'll be keeping an eye on it. And if you want to follow Connor on Twitter, he's at C1McKnight. Connor, thanks again, man. Really good stuff today.
2: Anytime, fellas. Love the work. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Socks podcast for James Fox and Connor McKnight. My name's Mike Rankin. Check us out on anchor.fm forward slash Future Socks to browse our entire library. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google, whatever podcasting network you're able to find and stream us give us a listen like and subscribe we really appreciate you guys for tuning in one more time for Connor mcmite thanks so much for listening
2: to the future socks podcast we'll talk to you all next time